Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. On Climate One today, we're discussing hydraulic fracturing for oil and natural gas. The injection of water or steam into shale rock at high pressure, a process known as fracking, is driving a boom in the United States of natural gas to generate electricity and oil to move cars and trucks. Increased supply of natural gas has fundamentally changed the energy, the politics, and energy in America and economics, undercutting the price of electricity powered by coal, nuclear, and renewable sources. But fracking, which is mostly associated with drilling for natural gas, is highly controversial. Proponents say it can be done safely and responsibly with proper government oversight and company disclosure. Critics say fracking is not regulated adequately and is contaminating groundwater with toxic chemicals. I'm Greg Dalton, and over the next hour, we'll talk about fracking in California and around the country with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to be joined by two reporters covering fracking for gas and oil. David Baker has written about energy for the San Francisco Chronicle since 2004. His reporting has covered nuclear, wind, and solar power and offshore oil drilling. Abram Lusgarten is a reporter for ProPublica, an online investigative news organization. His investigation of fracking for natural gas received an award for best energy writing from the National Press Foundation. And his reporting on BP and the Deepwater Horizon tragedy was nominated for an Emmy. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, guys. Uh, David Baker, let's begin with you. Tell us, describe for us the shale boom and what it's doing to the energy uh, landscape in America. It's doing a couple of things, and it's the most profound revolution that we've had in, in energy outside of the, the renewable stuff that's coming along online. The most profound revolution we've had in, in decades. Um, it is unlocked natural gas supplies that in the past we just couldn't get to. And more recently, it's unlocking oil supplies that were known for a long time but have just been not economical to produce. And so suddenly the dynamics and the politics of energy have been really upended within the last five or six years because we've got bigger supplies of these things than we thought just five, six, seven years ago. So it's a real game changer. Abram Lesgarten, uh, Time Magazine had a cover story with a shale rock and said, this rock can power the world. Is that right? Uh, well, 
there's a, there's an enormous amount, as David was just saying, of, of both oil and gas trapped in these shale rocks. Uh, they don't flow out naturally. They're not what the industry had long called for 150 years of development, conventional fuel. Uh, so uh, there's carbon in everything, and there's carbon in these rocks, and, and the whole idea is, th is that this technology uh, releases a certain amount of carbon that's uh, accessible at a certain reach that was just out of reach before. Uh, so yes, in terms of natural gas, there seems to be a, a very large supply. It's not quite clear if that supply is uh, significant enough to last 100 years, as some people say, but it uh, certainly could run power plants for, for the foreseeable future. And the upside of it is that it's domestic, it's supposedly cleaner than coal. We'll talk about that, whether that's actually the case. And it's cheaper. So it's cheaper, cleaner, sounds like a pretty good deal. I think that remains to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> what are the possible uh, downsides to, to natural gas? Well, there's uh, the risk of water contamination we've all heard a lot about. Uh, uh, Anecdotally, if you travel to, which I've done, uh, the places where drilling has happened across the country, uh, there are uh, stories, complaints of serious environmental problems having to do with water risk, uh, people's water taps, uh, underground water resources, uh, surface water systems. Um, those stories are, are prolific. Uh, there's a lot of byproducts, not just the fracking itself, uh, but from the entire drilling process that uh, cause serious environmental risk. Uh, and you mentioned that gas is cleaner, and it is when it's burned, uh, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions about how much gas, uh, both methane and then and, uh, the lengthier hydrocarbons like propane, hexane, uh, how much they uh, leak into the atmosphere when gas is drilled and when it's transported and uh, when it's prepared for use. And uh, the more we use gas, the more those, those leakage numbers add up and, and could also affect the climate equation. So gas could be the same as or just slightly better than coal. Is that right? Yeah, it burns. Depending on how it's extracted. Burns far cleaner than coal. Uh, the analysis that I've seen of the life cycle, uh, put it, depending on who you ask, put it at, uh, it's still an advantage by, by, um, by the consensus, uh, but maybe a much lesser advantage than, than the energy industry would like you to believe. David Baker, is it better than coal? Well, the main thing that's still outstanding, I think, is what he started to mention about the leakage. I mean, that's potentially a huge problem. The reason that some people like the natural gas boom who might not otherwise like it is the fact that it has allowed us to start shifting away from coal. I mean, even before President Obama started talking about regulating emissions from coal plants, companies had stopped proposing new coal plants because natural gas was coming along so fast and was getting to be so cheap. And that's been a huge benefit in terms of trying to shave down our, our greenhouse gas emissions in the country. But if it turns out the leakage problem is worse than we realize, all those gains could be erased because methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. I've seen some estimates saying it's about 20, 20 times as powerful. So you don't have to have a, a lot of leakage in order for it to wipe out the whole climate benefit that we're hoping to get from natural gas. And how do we know? There's thousands of wells that are fracked in the United States, and are they being monitored? Are there, are there, are, who knows if this leakage is happening? Abram? Oh, well, we don't really know. Um, the monitoring and observation of what happens in the drilling fields has increased and improved dramatically in the, in the past four or five years, uh, but I'd say it's still woefully inadequate. Um, most states don't have uh, laws in place that would even require 
uh, a driller to notify the state or seek a permit to hydraulically fracture a formation before they do it. Uh, a couple of years ago, none did. Um, and as far as monitoring for contaminants, uh, that's uh, that's pretty much a different conversation altogether, and it, and it almost doesn't happen. I mean, it's subject to, to independent scientific research and financing and so forth. Uh, there generally is no system to monitor for groundwater quality. Uh, there are aquifers that we haven't even identified that are drinking water sources or potential drinking water sources, uh, but even those that we have identified, uh, there's nothing like, uh, you know, systematic detection of the quality in that water to, to tell whether there's contaminants, whether it's from agriculture or from fracking or uh, or, or what have you. Uh, and the same with, with the air quality concerns we're talking about. Uh, there have been localized research uh, endeavors begun in a number of, of the drilling hotspots since this debate began in the last couple of years. But uh, before 2009, 2010, there was uh, nothing being done to, to uh, monitor air quality in drilling areas, and it's still at a, a, a minuscule fraction of, of drilling geographies now. Let's take a second here to just basically uh, describe what fracking is. There's, there's oil and gas wells. What, what happens? David Baker, just give us a, a real brief sort of the injection and what's going on. The basic idea is that you drill a, a well down into a shale rock formation, and you shove down into it a large amount of water mixed with a small amount of sand and chemicals. Uh, the chemicals are usually less than 5% of what you're shoving down. But you pump it all in there under very high pressure, and it will crack the rocks down at the bottom. And that will you create sort of a network of cracks that allows either oil or gas to escape from the rock and get to the well, and it will come back up. Uh, we've had this technology around for a very long time, but what's happened recently that sort of revolutionized things is we've gotten better at combining it with horizontal drilling, which is drilling down and then basically taking a right turn when you get to the, the formation you like. And so instead of just fracking a little bit uh, along the way, you're actually fracking a couple of miles of, of, of rock as you go. Um, and that's the basic technique. There are tweaks on it that people have. But. And Abram Lescart, what's in the fracking fluid, the, this cocktail that goes down there to, to help get uh, uh, release those uh, bubbles in the rock that come out as oil or gas? What's in the fluid? Specifically, we don't know, and, and that's one of the key issues. Uh, generally, uh, it's a mixture of uh, lubricants and things called surfactants and, uh, and other materials that are meant to reduce friction when these, uh, when these substances are put into the well and, and increase the, you know, the flow rate when it comes out and have all these sort of different effects. Uh, but as far as what the actual chemical makeup is, uh, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, the oil and gas industry uh, claim protects its information as, as proprietary. They say that they're competitive trade secrets. Uh, they use the analogy of, you know, Coke doesn't want to divulge its recipe to Pepsi. Uh, the federal government has accepted this uh, so far as far as application to federal laws. Uh, it's exempted from uh, uh, parts of the law that would require disclosure. Uh, and the industry kind of ambles along this way and lets the debate unfold. And uh, over the past couple of years, there has been a clamor uh, of requests to understand what's being put underground. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, really substantive steps towards increased disclosure. Uh, a couple of states are now requiring it, which is a, a really positive development. Um, and the industry has developed a, a disclosure and, and you know, quasi-transparency site that it calls Frac Focus, where they actually post um, all sorts of data about the wells that they drill, uh, including what chemicals they put underground. Um, 
it's an improvement. We know a lot more than we than we did before, uh, but I, I haven't analyzed that data personally. But uh, those that have say that uh, that it still has a lot of holes. And uh, when I talk to state regulators in the places where disclosure is now required, places like Wyoming, for example, um, they still make exceptions and they still allow for the protection of certain business uh, information. And what they found after the law has been in place for a couple of years is that uh, the companies really push the limits on, on what they can get away with. So there's still a great deal of information that is uh, not disclosed. So we don't know exactly how much. David Baker? Yeah, we have in California, we have not previously regulated fracking any differently than we do any other form of, of oil and gas drilling. But the state division of oil, gas, and geothermal resources, basically the regulators at the state level, are developing a set of regulations that they're trying to finalize in the next year or so. Part of it does require reporting of the chemicals, but they keep in that exception, well, you don't have to publicize everything if you can prove to us it's a trade secret. You, under these regulations, the companies would still have to cough up that information to the state if the state requested it, but the state wouldn't release it to you. So it would still be essentially a secret. And companies doing this drilling often say that it happens very deep below aquifers and that basically the bad stuff can't get back up into, into uh, water tables that supply communities. Is that the case, Abram Lascarton? This is a, lo- a very logical-sounding argument that is kind of the fundamental uh, talking point of, on, on this issue. Uh, I, I actually just don't think we know enough to say whether that's true or not. Uh, I've done a, a lot of research into this issue and found a lot of uh, uh, geohydrologists and hydrologists who have more reason to think that it's not true than it is true at this point, but they don't really know for sure. Um, I haven't seen peer-reviewed scientific journal uh, research that substantiates that idea that uh, that has tested the hypothesis that something simply because of distance or because of the layers in the rock cannot migrate up into drinking water aquifers. Uh, and and there's a lot of, of new understandings, new discoveries about the extent of natural fracture systems underground, uh, natural fault systems, um, weird things about the way water flows and is pressurized that, that defies conventional understanding. And every time one of these things come up, um, it really changes you know, the thinking around what's possible and what's not. But often it comes up in other disciplines, whether it's geothermal energy instead of natural gas, and um, they're not necessarily cross-pollinating. And, Abram Lesgarten, you've done reporting a couple of years ago where you said there was a 1,000 cases of documented water contamination, directly or indirectly, from fracking activity. Explain that. Yeah, that's right. That was, uh, that was just a start. I think it was the first or one of the first stories that I'd done on this subject. And um, we just tried to get a quick measure in some of the drilling hotspots of how much of an issue water contamination was. Uh, so that's a figure that includes um, that's groundwater contamination, but includes from uh, all sorts of uh, causes, including surface spills, perhaps from uh, fracking underground, perhaps from leaking in the in the pipe mechanism itself. Uh, we basically combined uh, figures that were available from state agencies in. Um, the majority of them, I think, for that for that number came from uh, from New Mexico and from Colorado, uh, a handful from uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania, and so forth. Um, New Mexico, for example, had done had just completed at that time a study uh, finding that in 700 cases, uh, the the waste pits that hold used fracking fluids uh, had they were unlined in New Mexico at the time, and that they had leaked into and contaminated groundwater sources. 
Um, Colorado state regulators, the state oil and gas agency, has a, a really incredible dynamic um, data source on their website, and you can go in and search for whatever parameters you want, and one of them is groundwater contamination. So um, you can you can just run a query uh, that selects um, natural gas wells. The state will say that 99% of the wells in, in the state are, are fracked. So natural gas wells with accidents or incidents that have happened underground and, and uh, and contaminated groundwater in some way, um, and and that query uh, contributed a couple thousand uh, results last time I'd looked. And what happens once water is contaminated? Then what? Can it be cleaned up? Who pays? Who's responsible? <laughs> Crickets. Well. The- there's a lot of different ways to talk about water contamination, but um, to look at aquifer contamination, the prospect that a large body of, of water underground is polluted um, generally can't be cleaned up and, and historically shows that uh, that it's very, very difficult to do so. Uh, I'm thinking of a, a federal study from uh, on a related issue uh, of, of waste injection but that goes back to the, the late 80s that uh, looked at um, the uh, Government Accountability Office looked at I think 23 uh, different incidents across the country of, of aquifer contamination, a lot from oil and gas, but from various industries. Uh, and, and you just go down the list of, of what was done, uh, and, and one after one, it, it says uh, no remediation plan too expensive. So uh, generally doesn't happen. So, yeah, it's okay. David Baker, any known water contamination in California? From oil wells? Oil or fracking, fracking oil or gas. Most of the fracking in California is for oil. Yeah, the, I actually, I asked that, uh, asked that the other day of um, the, the guy who heads the uh, state regulatory agency. He said he could not recall any instance in which uh, there was actual aquifer contamination from wells. Now, he could recall instances where they had problems with well casings and liquids did get out. Of the wells, casing is like the the the, the exterior case yeah. of of a well that goes down into the ground. Okay. Yeah, essentially, oil wells are all constructed as like sort of like a straw within a straw within a straw. They have different layers to keep the the fluids that you're working with from getting into the surrounding rock. But it can still happen. You can still develop cracks. The the casing can fail. And uh, this gentleman was telling me, yeah, they have had cases where the casing has failed and. Water, produced water, oil will get out into the surrounding rocks. The way they usually deal with that is you stop up the bottom of the well, um, you start pumping out from the top, and you suck the stuff out. And that way you can usually get this. So it's sort of like sucking poison from a wound, I guess. But yeah, he, he said there were, he could not recall any instance of an aquifer actually being contaminated in the end. Let's talk about the Environmental Protection Agency, which the national watchdog, presumably watching over these things. Abram Lusgarten, you've written in uh, Wyoming and Pennsylvania and Texas about the EPA backing off. So tell, let's talk about uh, Pavilion first in Wyoming, that case there, that story. Yeah, sure. Uh, in Pavilion, Wyoming, is this little rural town about 150 miles uh, east of Jackson Hole or Jackson. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a real intensely drilled area for natural gas. Uh, starting in the mid-1990s, residents there began complaining that their water uh, was foul, that they're having trouble. Uh, you know, one, um, one guy tells me that as a well across his field was, was fracked, his washing machine turned black and cra- cloudy. Uh, others complain of, of 
bad taste. Uh, I went there. We filled a stock well um, with with water out of uh, another gentleman's tap and um, and took a torch to it, and the top uh, lit on fire and, and melted. Uh, just like the movie. You know, yeah. so, just like the movie. Uh, so... Um, so they'd been complaining for years and years, and the state uh, had investigated, not, not really found a whole lot of problems and wasn't pursuing it uh, aggressively. And in 2008, the EPA stepped in uh, under their Superfund program uh, to figure out what was wrong with, with the water there. Uh, this is a little bit pre-fracturing controversy, and, and this wasn't begun as, a, as an investigation into drilling, per se, just, uh, just environmental concerns. And... Um, over the couple of years that, that followed, uh, they did uh, dozens of water tests, and they found um, uh, pretty concerning evidence to, to EPA scientists anyway that uh, that gas drilling was the cause, that there were probably multiple potential causes, but among them was uh, were wells that were fracked. They found uh, trace levels of chemicals that are known to be used in hydraulic fracturing. Um, they went through several several layers of, of research, retesting uh, different phases, and uh, in the the study became more and more controversial. Uh, and then uh, just uh, uh, this spring, uh, last month, uh, early June, I think, um, the agency, having completed all of its research and, and just on the on the, uh, the end of its public comment period and about to peer review its findings, uh, abandoned the study, uh, backed out of it completely, said it will not finalize or certify its results, and it was turning it back over to the state of Wyoming. And who's funding the study in the state of Wyoming? The state of Wyoming is using a, a, a $1.5 million contribution from Encana, which is the Canadian uh, oil and gas company that uh, drilled the wells in Pavilion, Wyoming. If you're just joining us, we're talking about hydraulic fracturing for oil and gas at Climate One. Uh, our guests are Abram Lesgarten, reporter with ProPublica, and David Baker, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about one other case in Texas. Is it Goliad County? And there's some people connected to uh, Washington that, that had a similar uh, influence on what a change of course there in Texas. Um, the natural gas-related incident is... Uh, uranium energy was that oil or gas? That's that was uranium actually. Uh, oh, it was. So okay. interesting, different uh, different case. But uh, in Parker County, Texas, is another gas-related investigation. Okay. So th- yeah, that's um, uh, nearby. But there's a good story about Goliad County as well that that relates. But uh, in Parker County, Texas, also there was uh, widespread methane contamination, uh, uh, flammable tap water uh, coming out of people's taps, and the EPA uh, was quite alarmed, stepped in quite aggressively, uh, filed a court order that stopped the drilling company there, Range Resources, from doing anything until they solved what was happening environmentally. Um, EPA hired a whole bunch of experts uh, who found, in their opinions, very conclusive evidence that the two were connected, that the gas drilling and the contamination were related. Uh, and and once again, similar to Wyoming, um, abruptly dropped their their case. Uh, there were a couple of other media investigations by the Associated Press and by uh, uh, a group called Energy Wire that separately found um, uh, reported that the EPA had agreed to a bit of a quid pro quo to get the gas industry's uh, cooperation in other studies elsewhere, non-specified. Um, and also that uh, you know that uh, lobbyists for the industry had intervened on on range resources behalf, uh, but it, there was never uh, the, the answer. The reason why they backed out of that study has never been clear, and uh, they never offered an explanation. 
David Baker Hinckley is a celebrated case in California uh, where there was some water contamination related to natural gas distribution. Uh, you may remember Hinckley from Aaron Brockovich, the movie. And that plume is actually getting bigger. And a 2000 test, 2010 test found that it actually is getting down into a water aquifer. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's a totally different uh, end of the energy industry that you're talking about. But it's hexavalent chromium. And it is there, look, it appears to be to stay. Um, the plume is getting bigger. It's migrating. PG&E, which is responsible for this, uh, has tried a couple of ways to, to pin in the plume and basically like sucking water out of specific parts of the aquifer, hoping that you can sort of create a, a bit of a pen around it. But it hasn't worked. And, I mean, Hinkley, even though it's not about fracking, Hinkley is a pretty good demonstration of the dangers of toying around with an aquifer because if you taint somebody's drinking water, you have destroyed their property value from that point going forward. Nobody is going to want to buy your house, and even if you get a replacement water supply, you know, you're pretty much screwed in that way. And so that should be a, a big warning sign to people that this is not something you can monkey around with. So when fracking is about to happen, do landowners need to be notified in advance that fracking will happen nearby pre-notification, David Baker? Right now, no. Um, there is a bill pending in Sacramento regarding fracking. It's, there were actually about 11 of them at one point in this legislative session, but there's only one remaining right now. It's from Senator Fran Pavley, and it does require that. It does require a notification of surrounding property owners if you're going to frack a well. It, it's part of a, it sets up a, a specific permit that you would need to get in order to frack a, a well. And so you'd have to notify the people around you. Um, the proposed regulations that the state is looking at outside of that bill would not exactly require notifying your neighbors. It would simply re- require posting a notice that would go on a state website a couple of days before the frack job would start. Um, I think it's three days before the frack jobs start. So you wouldn't have any specific warning that this was happening near you. You would just have to be very alert. Until the trucks start uh, rolling in. Uh, Abram Lusgarten, a lot of landowners are becoming instant millionaires by leasing their rights to natural gas on their land. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is... um uh, it's a mixed bag, like every part of, of this, this conversation. Uh, but certainly, uh, energy development is, uh, something that can bring a lot of wealth to the places where it happens. And a lot of the energy development that we've seen in the last couple of years is in some of the poorest parts of the country. Um, when you look at, you know, Appalachian, West Virginia, and, uh, rural parts of Pennsylvania, um, these are places that don't have a lot of jobs and haven't had a lot of employment and, uh, and for some people have, have brought in a lot of money. Um, I, I actually think there's really interesting questions to be answered still about whether they get the money that they're owed, whether they get as much money as they as they should be getting. Uh, but but no doubt there is a huge influx, not only of cash in terms of payments, but uh, in terms of economic activity and new hotels and uh, restaurant business and all the things that come along with um, having a boom. Do some landowners have uh, sort of lessors remorse that they sell uh, some leases and then have problems afterwards and go, oh, I wish I didn't do that, but then they're, they're contractually obligated? I talk to an enormous amount of people that have remorse of one form or another on this issue. Um, uh, many for environmental reasons that, that we're talking about, uh, but, but others just for financial reasons. Uh, they thought the payout would be bigger. 
Um, they thought that uh, the, the ratio of uh, inconvenience or environmental impact or just disturbance to their property to, uh, to pay out would be different, um, that it would seem more worthwhile. Uh, there's a lot of people that kind of wish they could change the decisions that they made. New York State, uh, there's been a lot of fracking talk in New York State. There's currently a ban there. Let's talk about Governor Cuomo and, and where the status of fracking is in New York State. Abraham Muscar. Uh, Governor Cuomo is procrastinating. Uh, and <laughs> he's, he's running for president. That's what he's saying. Um, you know, it's a, I know Joe Martens, his, his environment commissioner, uh, you know, pretty well from before he was environment commissioner. Uh, they're, they're in kind of an interesting bind, uh, and I think they're just taking a very, uh, you know, strategic, uh, path towards not making any decision quickly. Um, you know, if you watch closely New York politics, you know he'll 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 move slightly incrementally when the pressure builds up, and and one side or the other, the drilling industry or the environmental community, really wants an answer. Um, but uh, there's there's no. That's right. There, there was a whole film called Dear Governor Cuomo, and a lot of Hollywood celebrities aimed. You know, the film made basically, as the title suggests, for one person yeah. to deliver that kind of pressure. But it's coming from both sides. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, well, I, I, you know, I think that a quick course in the in the background there is actually kind of interesting. Uh, New York was was poised to uh, to plow ahead with drilling in the Marcellus Shale. Uh, and uh, they kind of turned on a dime and uh, and stopped all development in 2008 and ordered uh, uh, a new environmental impact study, uh, which is a pretty big deal uh, in, in New York State. Um, the idea was that that would go on for a year, year and a half. It'd answer some of these questions and then um, and then probably proceed with drilling, but maybe in a measured way or with, with certain precautions taken. Uh, and what happened since then, uh, you know, is well several several things. I mean, the, the issue became a, a huge national controversy. Uh, a lot of the opposition to drilling uh, is in New York State. A lot of the, the environmental uh, voice behind this issue. Uh, Cuomo came into office. He wasn't at the beginning of, of this issue, uh, and he's he's kind of in a bind. Uh, you know, it's it's potentially very unpopular to a Democrat to uh, to be pro energy and anti environment. Uh, and it's potentially lethal to any politician in the United States to be anti-energy. Uh, so, and I'll take that on top of the opportunities that, that we discussed about, you know, gas being potentially cleaner in certain ways. Um, it's just a very sticky situation. And, and my my read is that he intends to uh, finish his term as governor without taking any stance on the issue. And even some of the opponents of fracking in New York have run uh, TV advertisements in Iowa. First presidential caucus, <laughs> sort of shot across the bow for Governor Cuomo's uh, political ambitions uh, on this issue. Uh, David Baker in California, uh, Governor Brown, we pretty sure is not running for president again. Um, uh, the, uh, he says he's not, but uh, <laughs> what is this? Where is Governor Brown on fracking in California? Uh, he's not being quite as coy as, as Governor Cuomo. Uh, he's still up in the air. Um, still on the fence, and there are a lot of people trying to push him off of that fence. He has made very few public comments about it. The few that he has made sound like he's a little leaning a little more towards being comfortable with fracking than a lot of his supporters would like. He has talked a couple of times about uh, what he calls the extraordinary energy resources that we've got here in the, the state. He's talking about a specific shale formation called the Monterey Shale, which lies beneath most of the southern end of the Central Valley and then like going towards the the coast, towards Vandenberg Air Force Base. Um, It's estimated to be the biggest source of, well, the biggest 
oil-bearing shale formation in the United States at 15.4 billion barrels. And so he's looking Which, at Let's just say that's about half of all the uh, oil in the Alaska North Slope. That's a ton of oil. It is indeed a ton of oil. And, you know, we here in California are actually becoming more dependent on foreign imported oil than the rest of the, than the, rest of the country. The rest of the country is actually becoming less. Um, so there's a real impetus for him to be interested in that. There was a, a report that uh, USC put out a couple of months ago suggesting that if production really took off in the, the Marcellus shale, that the state would add at least, uh, I think, 2.8% to its GDP. In the Monterey shale? Yeah, yeah if, uh, if it, in the Monterey shale, if it really took off. Um, so Governor Brown's still very much on the fence. A lot of uh, environmental groups are trying to get him to take a anti-fracking position, but he hasn't. There have been bills introduced to just halt fracking in the state. Those have all fallen apart. Uh, the bill I mentioned earlier from Pavley would have actually imposed a moratorium uh, in 2015 if the state didn't finish a study of fracking's dangers first. But in order to get the bill through the Senate, she took that out. So at the moment, it's still moving forward. And the Monterey shale could be a huge bonanza, uh, but you think it actually will be developed? It's been known about for a long time, and it's very naughty geography. It's hard to get at. It's yeah. not like Pennsylvania, Texas, which is flat, pancakey, kind of get into it, and you can suck lots of hydrocarbons out of it. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of hype and excitement in the oil industry about this particular formation, but that's been true for four or five years now. And a lot of people are poking at it and trying it and fracking various wells here and there, but it just has not taken off. It has stubbornly refused to take off the way production did in North Dakota or Texas and places like that. When I ask why, I always get the same response so far, which is that this shale formation, like all of the geology in California, is so crumpled, twisted, tilted, and complicated that you can't necessarily use the same approach to fracking this well that you did at a well five miles away. So they can't, the companies can't do sort of a factory model approach where they know pretty much what they need to do well to well and just repeat it endlessly. It's much more complicated than that, and therefore it may be much harder and more costly to produce. Abram Muscarton, that much money in the ground, you think it will inevitably will come out and be burned? I think eventually. I mean, you can um, bet your lives on the fact that there's really smart uh, petroleum engineers trying to figure out how to solve what David's describing. Um, you know, look at what's happening now in North Dakota and the Bakken Shale, and uh, and similarly, that's a that, those are geologic formations that were known to hold oil, you know, back to the 1930s, and there were huge efforts to develop them in the 1970s, and again in the 1990s, and it, and it didn't really work out for various reasons, including frustrations with the geology, uh, and and they've solved it uh, now, or they're they're solving it. So. Um, it might be more complex here. I think Dave is probably a lot more familiar with that than I am. Uh, but I do think that there's, uh, I mean, just from a, from a research and development standpoint, there's not many things in this country that get the, the amount of resources and effort and attention uh, that the oil industry puts into accessing reserves of that size. And it's just huge. Abraham Leskarten is a, part, a reporter with ProPublica. Our other guest today at Climate One are David Baker, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Greg Dalton. Water is a big issue here. We've been talking about contamination, not so much about competition for supply. Let's talk about how fracking can compete with agriculture and other uh, people who want to use water. David Baker, I mean, there is an ag versus oil uh, scuffle over water in California. It's, it's popped up 
in other states more than it has here. Um, Colorado is sort of the, the poster boy for that. Um, you've seen it also happening in Texas. And, yeah, I mean, if you get into a competition of bidding, oil companies are going to win. They can outbid ranchers and farmers pretty much any day. California, so far, it hasn't really become an issue largely because the frack jobs in this state so far have not used nearly as much water as they have elsewhere in the country. And again, that's due to quirks of geology. Um, The formations that we've got here are very heavily loaded with briny, brackish water that it's not drinkable, but it's locked in the rocks with the oil. And as a result of that, you don't actually have to pump as much water and chemicals and sand down into a frack fracked well in order to crack those rocks. You don't have to pump it, add as much to, to get the pressure that you want. Also, so far, because of the, the folded geology down there, most of the fracking done in this state is not being done in connection with horizontal drilling. It's mostly going down and then fracking there. So you're, you're not talking about as long a well in the end that you need to pump with water. So whereas in other parts of the country, you're talking over a million gallons per well, here in California, it's, it's more in the order of 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 gallons of water per well. And as a result of that, we're not, we haven't seen the same kind of like really, you know, we haven't seen the same kind of bidding war over water that you get in a few other places. Abram, let's, let's talk about that in other places, your experience on sort of the competition for water supply. Yeah, yeah, I usually talk about Texas when, um, when this question comes up, uh, because I think it's, it's the most interesting example of, of a water, uh, starved area that is, um, from a policy standpoint and industry standpoint plowing into, you know, the drilling opportunities, um, just headlong. Uh, you know, Texas is experiencing, uh, has multi-year, you know, experiencing one of the, one of the worst droughts on record. Uh, it, uh, has serious water demands that aren't being met. Uh, it's going to extraordinary measures to find uh, those water resources in a lot of different ways, whether it's drilling for new aquifers or uh, taking a dispute with neighboring Oklahoma to the Supreme Court of the United States over water rights uh, or looking at uh, ex- like uh, exotic plans to pipe water in from elsewhere. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Texas has uh, tens of thousands of these horizontal wells, uh, which use up to 10 million gallons of water apiece uh, and can be fracked you know, four to eight times. Uh, so uh, there, there's a real contradiction. And, and the water that they're using for the fracking, unlike a lot of other industrial processes, uh, is for the most part removed from the water cycle. Um, there's some efforts to, to uh, explore recycling, but for the most part, the wastewater, uh, to the extent that it comes out of the well, if it does at all, uh, is just pumped back down into a well where uh, the expectation is that we'll never see it or, or touch it again. Um, so, you know, and, that, and there are similar tensions, uh, you know, whether it's in um, Michigan or, uh, or Pennsylvania or Texas. Uh, and, you know, I think there will be in, in California to some degree. It really, if you were to describe a person that pursues something that's not good for it, it's a junkie that needs to get its fix, it doesn't take care of its nutrition and hydrate itself. If you were to, if, well, I won't say if Texas were a person, uh, right? It really sounds like self-destructive, crazy behavior to pursue this profit or this addiction at the expense of the health of everything else. Short term, it's awesome. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a question, what that was, but... Um, <laughs> Um, let's talk about internationally. Is this something that's happening just in the United States or is fracking happening overseas as well? 
Well, David there are definitely companies that are looking at it overseas. Chevron, in our backyard here, uh, is moving aggressively to look at this in Eastern Europe and also down in Argentina. But so far, we're, we're ground zero for this. Is this something that we can export, an export industry for the United States? The industry hopes so. Um, you know, I mean, the, the technology that's made this possible is largely American-based, is, you know, Halliburton uh, and, uh, and other American companies. Schlumberger is a French company that does a lot of the fracking, but, uh, but it's their U.S. operations still where this has evolved. So, so the question in a lot of places where they want to drill aggressively, like Eastern Europe or South Africa or places like that, is how do you get the infrastructure and the technology that we have here, there. Uh, and so far, that's proven to be extremely expensive or um, or impractical. Uh, so that seems to be the holdup. Some advocates of fracking say that technology can improve it, that water can be recycled, the frack fluid, fluid can be done cleanly. Halliburton has a so-called clean frack fluid uh, that, that sells for a premium. Uh, not sure how, how uh, clean that is. Uh, so far, I think a lot of drillers aren't, using that more expensive option because they don't have to. And I've even heard talk about research or the concept of waterless fracking. So can can technology improvement make fracking safer in a way that we've been talking about? Abraham Lascaron? Yeah, I, definitely. Um, and not just technology, but but the implementation of better practices, of just safer, safer drilling. I mean, between the two, there's a lot of uh, techniques that I think we have the potential to develop and many that are developed that are... Uh, you know, would go a very, very long ways towards mitigating the majority of the risks that we identify now. I think there's some, there's certain risks. What happens to aquifers deep underground is something that technology isn't going to be able to address. Uh, but um, but many of, of the cases that, you know, you asked about, you know, my, my count of a 1,000 cases, the vast majority of those uh, – could be dealt with by better practices. Uh, waste pits, if they're lined or if they're not used at all, which some states are, are moving towards, would eliminate those 700 cases of water contamination. Um, a lot of what we look at are problems with well cementing and uh, the structure of the well itself and, and leaks coming up the well bore. Uh, you know, we talk about the isolation of of contaminants miles underground, but the thing that connects them to the surface is the well bore itself. And so if it was sealed off at one point in time, you know, humankind has has broken that seal with a well. Uh, so there's a lot you can do in a well itself to make sure that it's um, constructed properly in a way that would at least uh, reduce the number of, of accidents. David Baker? I think one of the, the issues here, though, that has alarmed so many people is we had such a boom of this, this practice in places like Pennsylvania and North Dakota that we seem to have had a, a gold rush mentality. You have a lot of small companies moving in to operate very quickly without a lot of oversight. And pretty much whenever you have that, you're going to have people getting sloppy. And I think there are best practices that can really improve this. And, you know, the company, the companies along with uh, one environmental group I know of are trying to come up with, like, the, the absolute gold standard of, of how to do it. But, you know, if you don't have – if you have that kind of environment where too many people are rushing in to do it and – they're not all being careful. You are going to have accidents. And I think that's why people have been clamoring for and somewhat disappointed in the way states have been regulating this because in that kind of environment, you really do need a, a tough regulator to come in and keep an eye on things. And the off argument is often made that the large companies with the, the big brands are more responsible and safer because they have more to risk. They can't afford 
bad PR, where it's the wildcatters that are out there trying to just get it out as much as fast as fast as they can and, the, and then move on. Abraham Laskartan, is that accurate? I think there's some truth to that, but uh, but I don't think it's an absolute. Uh, surely uh, the big companies have a, a bigger brand reputation uh, at risk, uh, and they also have the the finances to. Uh, to work in, a, in, you know, to apply better methods without it costing them as much as it will some small wildcatter. Uh, you know, but in general, I think that, uh, you know, the industry's out there to make money. Their top concern is, uh, not always to protect the environment, except, you know, to the, to the extent that it, uh, that it also affects their brand and reputation. Um, and, and for the most part, uh, you know, maybe with a couple welcome exceptions, uh, companies are gonna meet the, the minimum requirements, uh, whatever they may be. Uh, to do this, whether that's a regulatory requirement or sort of a public perception requirement. Um, but I, I haven't seen a whole lot of examples, uh, you know, of them uh, exceeding uh, those requirements by any, you know, wild distance. If you're just joining us on the radio, our guests today at Climate One are Abram Luskart, reporter with ProPublica, and David Baker, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Greg Dalton. You can find podcasts of this and other Climate One programs in the iTunes Store and follow us on Twitter at, at @climateone. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, thanks, Greg. <laughs> uh, in California, we have big problems with aquifer contamination, uh, principally from uh, runoff of, of fertilizers in the Central Valley. Do you have any sense of quantitatively of, of the threat of fracking either in California or other areas versus what we've already seen with, with uh, this, these nutrients that have got into groundwater and taken cities like Modesto and Davis uh, that have had to give up their wells and, and switch it to other other sources. David Baker. Yeah, I, I don't. The quick answer is no. I don't have a good way to, to quantify that. Um, I would note, though, that the stuff that you're talking about there is surface, basically a surface problem migrating down into the aquifer. Whereas with the oil wells, fracked or otherwise, you're talking about extracting something from below the aquifer and, and making sure that it doesn't get in as it comes on the way up. Um, no, I, I, I haven't seen anyone try to, like, make a comparison of the numbers on that. I'm not sure if anyone's working on something like that. I would say that there are, you know, different forms of contamination in terms of where the, the problem's coming from, either above or below. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hello, and thank you for joining us this Friday. Mr. Liscarden, one of the things I saw in your Deepwater Horizon articles otherwise is that the capacity of the regulator to do some of these things, especially as the industry gets really complex new technologies that it's implementing just doesn't keep up and the regulator doesn't really know that much about what it's regulating, especially can't get that expertise because it's all in the industry. Is that the case regarding fracking as it was with, say, deep water drilling? And if so, what pathways out of that or what approaches to getting that expertise do you see that we can still do as a country? Uh, yeah, I mean, speaking really broadly, I think it's, a, it's an issue. It's a fu- sort of fundamental dynamic with regulating resources in general, oil and gas uh, more specifically, um, you know, the dynamic looks something like this. You know, state agencies are resource-starved, working with small budgets. Their staff are paid a very small amount. And as, uh, you know, the expertise of any given staff person grows, uh, they're worth more and the industry pays a whole lot better and there's a bit of a revolving door for very uh, understandable reasons. Uh, so you have a bit of like a suction 
phenomena where the best talent, uh, the best technology, uh, best technological understanding uh, flows towards the industry on one hand. So you, so you just don't have the best oversight in those state agencies. Uh, and on the other hand, you have uh, a, a real closeness uh, through proximity, sometimes through funding and state financing and the tax structure uh, between those regulators and uh, the industry that they're regulating that, um, that kind of compounds the problem. Um, the caveat, certainly, there's, there's really talented state regulators who are really dedicated to their jobs, and I've met many of them. Uh, but across the board, I, I, the, the, the dynamic is problematic. Welcome to Climate One. Thanks for that question. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Uh, my understanding is that fracking requires significantly less drilling, but that the effects on land um, are about five times as much. What are the implications for archaeology and the um, preservation of historically significant spaces? Thank you. So the land imprint. David Baker, if you're fracking and going horizontal, don't you need fewer wells and less uh, impact on land, or is that not well, the case? Well, are you talking in terms of surface impact? I think she was talking about surface impact. Yeah. Uh, she mentioned archaeology and those sorts of things. So Yeah, I, I don't see that this would cause a problem for, for archaeologists any more than regular oil drilling does. I mean, essentially, you're still drilling a well. It's, it's The difference here is what you do once you get it drilled. Um, you're going to have a lot of more truck traffic on the surface because they need to bring in water. And you're going to have a lot more sort of industrial activity right around the well itself when they bring in the machinery that does the fracking. Um, What's the surface footprint around a well? Is it how many acres? Is it, I mean, is this sort of a I little I don't needle? know what industry standard. Is there? Yeah. Is, um, it's it's about five or seven acres for, for a well pad. Uh, and the uh, questioner gets it. Like one of the best practices that um, is increasingly being used, uh, which helps in this regard, is that horizontal drilling makes it possible to put multiple wells on one well pad. Uh, and that's one of the things that's happening a lot uh, in mountain states. Uh, so you can have a five-acre or seven-acre disturbance that uh, facilitates seven or eight wells instead of um, you know all of those wells being a half mile apart. Uh, so from a land disturbance perspective, that's that's a huge improvement. But uh, David mentions the, the trucks. It's actually the industrialization of rural America. It's one of the big objections to this. There's water, et cetera, but it's all the trucks trundling down uh, small town roads, and that's really tough to avoid unless water's recycled. But that's that's another aspect of this, David Baker. Yeah, I think that's one of the sort of one of the core problems in terms of, of the way the, the way fracking affects a community. Even if you're not getting contaminated water, even if everything goes right. You're taking some place that used to be a rural area, might have been, you know, farm fields, might have been ranch land, and basically turning it into an oil field. And, you know, if you're here in California and you want to buy a house next to, like, one of the big Bakersfield oil fields or, you know, the San Ardo oil field that we all pass on the 101 when we drive down to L.A., if you want to buy there, you know more or less what you're getting. You know what it looks like and all that. It's the sudden transformation of landscapes um, that has really freaked people out. And I spent a little time uh, earlier in my career reporting for a paper in western Pennsylvania. It's an absolutely gorgeous area. Um, the idea to me of, of trying to imagine that place, if fracking really took off right around there, is, I mean, my instant, instinct reaction would be just horror. It would really horrify me. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you, Mark Schwartz, former uh, candidate for mayor in Berkeley and um, applicant for a job in the State Department. It's a two-part question. One, wouldn't it be wonderful if we actually got our oil from Venezuela than just fracking? 
And the second part, from what I understand from the Bay Guardian and Amy Goodman, is that the oil companies are only paying, I think, four to ten dollars an acre, creating only a hundred thousand dollars for a state. When my feeling is that we should be getting a million dollars per acre, so the needs of our people can be met, such as housing for the homeless. So I just let's uh, let's talk about uh, pricing of extraction on federal lands, David Baker. It's actually they are getting. They are getting less in California, largely because the, the the stuff that has been auctioned off by the Federal Bureau of Land Management um, on top of the Monterey Shale has not generated that much interest in the auctions. Um, they've had fewer bidders here than they have at, elsewhere in the West, and they're coming up with lower prices as a result. Um, those auctions, by the way, are, are more or less on hold for probably about a year after a, a judge tossed out some of the leases in a, a lawsuit. But yeah, the, we're getting less money. Um, and that's, that's largely a function of the auctions that we've had. It's that we don't have nearly as many people bidding as you have in North Dakota and Texas. As for Venezuela, we do get oil from Venezuela um, and the Persian Gulf. So. Because uh, Alaskan supplies are declining. Abram Leskar, let's get you on on the price that taxpayers are getting paid for extraction of these resources on public lands. Um, it's it's worth a little bit of scrutiny. Uh, I'm taking a look at that now. Uh, you know, the Government Accountability Office targets uh, the federal government's revenue program for collecting royalties onshore and off from oil and gas drilling as. Um, one of the single uh, largest, well, it is one of the largest sources of revenue for the federal government, uh, and also one of the single uh, largest areas uh, that suffers from a lack of organization and under collection of funds. Uh, so it's really hard to quantify how much money is being left on the table, but the general consensus is that it's uh, it's many, many billions um, and, and not a small amount. Uh, states vary as far as how they, how they, whether they take a percentage of royalties or they take what they call a severance tax, uh, you know, a, a, an amount every time a well is drilled. Um, uh, but in general, uh, you know, the oil and gas industry seems to get access to the resources for uh, what they would describe as a pretty good deal. So it's cheaper to get it off of public lands than to negotiate with private landowners. It depends. It's hard yeah. to generalize. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. My name is Patricia Sun, and I uh, am the director of CarbonLiberty.org. And Carbon Liberty basically has the idea that we have to just jump the track entirely and stop causing ourselves to be addicts and being focused into is, is coal worse than fracking. We're being pushed into the constant battling each other. Instead of making the big leap to hydrogen's the most common atom in the universe, and we have lots of it. We could be at sea using solar and wind, causing hydrogen delivery to power plants on the coastlines. We would have no carbon. We could put at least our energy in that direction and study that. So I think the big problem is money, that we are all scared at the government. The big corporations are kind of mindless for money. And so everything just keeps going in this paralysis. So I appreciate your work very much because we need to have people informed. And I just hope that maybe sometimes you could bring up, you know, we could jump the track on this entirely. We could solve this with other prob- in other ways. Solve the Thank you. David Baker, is hydrogen the answer? I actually was speaking at a panel here a few years ago when we were talking about the future of transportation. 
And at the moment that I mentioned the word hydrogen, people in the audience hissed. Um, so, Thank you for not hissing today. Yeah, exactly. Now, hydrogen, that really would be jumping the track because if you think about that as like a transportation fuel, you can't put that in the pipelines of what we have already. You need an entirely different distribution system. Hmm? The, uh, okay. So switching everybody to electric vehicles and then... The idea of, of that's a very big track. Um, I mean, it's you're, there you're talking about something that might be feasible just as a thought experiment. But man, I don't, I can't begin to imagine how expensive that would be. The infrastructure costs of switching to hydrogen are, are huge. There's also a question of where does the hydrogen come from? Does it, it can sometimes cost a lot of take a lot of energy to generate the hydrogen can come from nuclear from other industrial right. sources let's have our next question thank you thank you for that question hi, hi my name is kelly hammergren i'm not a usual public speaker so i'm a little bit nervous and this is my first time here and this was a wonderful presentation so i have a couple of comments and then i have a question um, i had read that um Five percent of those, uh, the bores, the cement bores, fail immediately, and that 50 percent fail uh, by 15 years. And um, how about we get to your question? Maybe we can talk about some of the other things afterwards. Okay. So my question was about the water tunnels that um, Governor Brown has been pushing. Rumor has it that that. Uh, the water tunnels are being built so water can be diverted at Bakersfield for fracking. So is the state water system, there's some water bonds that have been on the state ballot. They keep getting pushed back. Is fracking part of California's water bonds and water plan, David Baker? Um, you know, I hadn't actually heard that theory before. I we don't know. We don't know is, is the, the easy answer. I put it this way. The, the, I'm not a huge fan of that particular infrastructure plan. But it's been pushed along for reasons very different from fracking. Um, and if you're in Southern California, you probably feel very differently about it than those of us up here do. Because, you know, they have a still growing population and they have tapped out their water. And if we don't have those tunnels or something in their place, and there's a major earthquake on the Hayward Fault, Southern California is going to be in deep, deep trouble. Um, so I fully accept the idea that fracking is not the main purpose of those tunnels. Um, would they get some water out of it anyway? They might. You know, They might be able to buy it off of one of the water agencies that would be, be getting the supply. California has lots of water issues independent of fracking. Yeah. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Thank you, Greg. And David and Aram, I want to thank both of you for your reporting on this issue. My question is about a ProPublica investigation released late last year of aquifer waivers around the country. And there were some of those waivers granted for oil and gas activity here in California. And I'm wondering, Aram, if you can talk a little bit about those waivers yeah, I'm eager to. I'm glad it came up. Um, you know, this get this whole conversation gets very lawyerly when um, we talk about what you're asking about, which is what's called aquifer exemptions. Uh, the basic idea is that despite all of our con- conversation about how to protect aquifers from contamination, uh, the EPA, which is largely responsible for protecting them, uh, has a has an entire program that exempts certain aquifers from protection. Um, 
so it allows the pollution of those aquifers uh, explicitly, and the vast majority of them are for oil and gas uh, waste disposal wells. Uh, many of those, I forget the numbers because it's been a long time since I wrote the article, but um, uh, tens of thousands of them uh, of the wells that we're uh, injecting into exempted aquifers are in California. Um, and it gets lawyerly and legalese because when you talk about uh, what contaminates drinking water, when you go and ask a state official, you know, whether there is an example of a drinking water aquifer being contaminated, uh, you know, we all think that might be a fairly uh, descriptive clause, but it, it actually has a very specific meaning in federal law. A drinking water aquifer meets certain scientific standards, and if it's been exempted from the law, it no longer meets those standards, and it's no longer a drinking water aquifer, so it cannot be contaminated. Uh, so, so if your mind can process those kind of flips, the bottom line is that um, in California, most of the areas where drilling has been happening for close to a century, uh, the, the drinking water quality aquifers that could foreseeably provide water of good quality in the state have already been exempted. Uh, and we don't know whether they're being increasingly polluted or disastrously polluted or protected or what, but, uh, but they don't count in the conversation. That's our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. This is a really good, <clears throat> really good discussion. But I'm a native Californian, and the one thing I haven't heard you talk about is earthquake risk. Although I've read about that in the East, can you address that issue? Thank you. David Baker, can hydraulic fracturing cause earthquakes? Hi hydraulic fracturing almost always causes at least a tiny quake because you are, after all, breaking rocks underground. The fracking itself, most of the time, does not produce quakes that you can feel on the surface, although sometimes it does. Uh, the largest one that I know of that has been directly tied to fracking was about a 3.6 up in British Columbia. But here's the caveat. Uh, they do have to get rid of the water. They usually do it by a deep injection disposal well, which until recently was considered the environmentally friendly way to go about it. And those wells can and do cause seismicity. They do cause earthquakes. And we have a lot of them around the state, um, a lot of those wells. We haven't had people actually go out and really study this over the years, even though we've had those wells for decades. Um, and I'm still kind of flabbergasted that some grad student or the USGS hasn't done this at some point. But we do have a lot of them. We're the perfect laboratory for it. Uh, we know this can happen. We've seen it happen in a bunch of places. So, yeah, uh, the fracking itself is not the problem, but disposing of the fracking water is. We're getting uh, – Abram Muscat, you want to add to that? I was just going to chime in quickly that one area, uh, one discipline where they are looking at this locally is um, is when it comes to geothermal energy mm -hmm. and particularly mm -hmm. up in Sonoma. And so Lawrence Berkeley Labs has uh, a huge staff that's devoted to that. And you can go to – the U.S. Geological Survey website and, and look at recent seismic activity in the Bay Area, and you'll see constantly, uh, you know, a, a little fireworks display up around Sonoma. Um, that's induced seismicity, and they're, they're, they're actively measuring with the Department of Energy. Uh, it's water that they're injecting. It's not frac fluids, but it's the same, same basic principle. Um, and they're actively measuring there uh, how much water under how much pressure results in what kind of quake. Uh, but that area in Sonoma is seeing, you know, uh, three to ten earthquakes a week uh, related to injection. And there's a similar study that just came out for the other big geothermal area in the state, which is down by the Salton Sea. Um, there you have very, very active earthquake zone, and largely because they're injecting this stuff in. 
Thanks for that question, pointing out that we had overlooked uh, earthquakes uh, in our conversation here at Climate One about hydraulic fracturing. We have just a couple minutes left, left and I want to hear your thoughts on where in the media has this been covered well, and where you know is the media doing a good job covering hydraulic fracturing outside of uh, your respective organization? Brown Muscarton, does this get a lot of get fair play? It gets an enormous amount of play compared to what it used to. Uh, so you know, um, in terms of the media landscape, that's hard to describe as anything but an improvement. Um, uh, you know, when I started writing about this in 2008, uh, it it got no play, um, and it was hard to, you know, it was hard to, to spread it around. It was hard to find publishers for the stories I was writing. Um, you know, so I think just by by the sheer number of stories, whether they're good or bad, uh, there's an improvement in, in coverage. Um, and uh, generally, yeah, and there's been a, an improvement in, in stories that go deep and look hard at these issues as well. Partly number there's, of outlets. there's good visuals on this, you know, uh, uh, lighting faucets on fire makes for good for TV, that sort of thing, which is not the case for some of the other more abstract things. David Baker? I think it has definitely improved uh, over the last few years. I think you personally are probably a big part of that improvement. <laughs> Thank you. You've really followed this amazingly well over the years. Um, you know, in terms of locally, I've been the energy reporter at the Chronicle for uh, quite a while. I wasn't writing about fracking until a few years ago, um, about three years ago, when it became apparent that we were finally getting more of this activity in the state. And at that point, uh, our paper got interested. So I was definitely part of the problem. I'm trying to be part of the solution at this point. Real quick, just wrap up. Is natural gas uh, a bridge to the future? From what I've heard today, you both think it can be done safely, better with technology. You're not against uh, fracking or natural gas uh, writ large. Uh, is it a bridge to the future, as its proponents uh, describe, Abraham Muscarton? I think it has the potential to be. Uh, but for it to be a bridge, there has to also be, uh, you know, policy action and investment action that's going towards, uh, you know, constructing what the other end of the bridge looks like. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily see that to the same degree that you see a huge investment or commitment to natural gas. Um, you know, you saw power plant emissions uh, decline dramatically in the last couple of years. Um, there seems to be an agreement that that's largely due to increased use of natural gas. I think there's parts of that that are debatable, um, but let's but let's accept it. Uh, you know, on its face for the moment, um, you know, that's that's definitely a sign that uh, that there is good to be gained through this process while we transition to something else. But I think, you know, we've just talked about all the long-term potential consequences. Uh, and, if, and if there isn't uh, another a landing point on the other end of that arc, then um, I'm not sure we'll be left with something that's better than what we already have. David Baker? I, I think it can be a bridge. Um, our government is certainly hoping that it's going to be a bridge. If, if any of you watched President Obama's climate change speech at Georgetown, he never once said the word fracking, but he did spend about two minutes talking about how wonderful it was that we had all this new natural gas, and this is going to be what gets us to the, the other end. Um, I think it has become such a controversy, and I think the, the issues raised about it are so worrisome and legitimate that if it's going to be the bridge, it's going to take a very different response from the federal government than we've seen so far and a, a stronger hand. And frankly, if the oil and gas industry wants this to be the future as well, they actually have to work more with the federal government. The, there needs to be a concerted effort at the, the top of the government to say, okay, 
we are going to study each of these issues in depth. Here are the answers. We are going to set these regulations to protect against these potential problems. They're going to be universally applied. And that, I see, could, if we have that kind of system, then I can see it being a bridge. If it stays this sort of piecemeal approach, people are just going to remain suspicious, suspicious and hostile. We're going to have more of the fighting. We have to end it there. Our thanks to David Baker, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and Abram Luskarten, reporter with ProPublica. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One. And you can listen to Climate One in iTunes and also follow us on Twitter at, at Climate One. Thank you all for coming.